What's good, my geeks and geekettes? This is the Tech Brada coming to you at the perfect time, 2.22 on July the 20th. Uh, Thursday, throw it back a little bit, nah. But we are going to talk about databases. Uh, we're going to talk about dependable database design. So I hope you all have been well. It's been a while since I know the Tech Brother has has discussed or shared some things of more technical nature. So we're going to start getting into more and more of these tech casts, if you will, just to kind of like uh, start talking about these uh, these different things. Um, plus, I'm building some software at home, so I kind of wanted to, to also kind of throw that out there and that the software that I'm building is going to be um, made use for For uh, for public consumption, let's just say that. What am I building? I'm building a social media, a social networking site, but it's different. I can't share much about it right now, but more details will come. Let's just say that it's something that everyone has probably wanted for a long time, and no one has either one dared to build it or two um, wanted to build it. But I always do the unmentionable. I always will do the things that people tell me that I can't do. That's just how I am. So I've kind of been sitting on this idea for a long time, actually. I tried doing it once before many years ago, but it was kind of at a crude level. You know, I had a whole lot of things going on at that time. Life was, was very, was very busy. So there was a lot of responsibilities and and different things that I had going on then. Right now, in this particular point in time, um, I've been able to kind of offload a lot of that. So life is good. I actually have time to sit down and write code for fun rather than writing code to survive. Um, so that's the difference. So I'm really looking forward to this. Um, I'm going to be starting like to lay out... Um, all of the documentation and different things and get started with it. But one thing that I was kind of thinking about last night, which is kind of uh, uh, the reason for this podcast is basically that, you know, what will my back end be? You know, what will, what will I store your data in? What will I store the data that the application needs in? Right. And then I started just thinking about, you know, cause I'm a data guy and so many people I see, they do it wrong. They do it wrong, you know. They start with the UI, they make it nice and pretty, but then when it comes down like uh, to the meat and potatoes of it, they can't support what they're envisioning, or rather, they can sometimes, but it's going to take a whole lot of code and a whole lot of work. And so, 
whenever I build software, which I've done, like I said, for, for going on over 20 years now, I start with the database and work my way out and come up with a scalable design. A scalable design that will, one, not only allow me to make changes as I go, but, but also kind of keep the solution a bit open-ended, if you will, so that, you know, you can, um, like, uh, uh, later on in life, if you want to add features and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Now, when people build software, you know, they typically, they typically always have, like, a particular thought in mind and then a particular uh, schematic or architectural uh, design that, that, that they're thinking about. And sometimes when you're working with data, it can be very specific. So you can get into to these things that I call contracts. So basically, in order to work with my data or consume it, it has to take a certain shape or form. So we have to be very cautious in how we go about even choosing the database that we want to use and the technologies that we're going to actually integrate in that database with. But even f even more important and prevalent is you got to have a solid dependable database design so that's what we're going to get into today hope you nerd and nerdettes love this so here we go so one thing that you got to keep in mind whenever you are creating any type of application whether it's web-based application-based mobile uh, if it's a service whatever at some point you know you're going to have a data store or some source of data and that source of data, you know, in terms of uh, security, you've got to make sure that when you create your database and you're building it, that you take security in mind from the jump. So many people I see have the security as kind of, it's kind of an afterthought. Let's go ahead and build what we want, but then we won't necessarily work in the importance of making sure that any particular critical data that we have, that'll be at rest. That means stored in the database. Sometimes we don't necessarily think through, okay, well, we got to make sure that we encrypt that or that we store it in this manner so as to, one, not get breached. You know, it's obvious if you have a whole bunch of social security numbers and a database table and it's clear text, even if it's only the last four and the previous is, is a hashed, if you have other identifying information for that particular user, there's a number of different vendors services and things out there that don't require the full social they they don't necessarily require a social sometimes it's only other incriminating information like last name and date of birth so these hackers are very smart they know how to get that data and get in front of it and try different things patterns and whatnot it's even worse when you have a best friend or someone close to you that knows a lot about you and then they hack you so whenever you're building anything, whether it's your own software or else, you know, if you're at work, you got to make sure that you encompass security as the foremost important topic before you even start anything. Yeah, the tables are important. I get it. The data that you're going to store, I get it. But what's even more important is, okay, in what capacity, how are you going to store this data securely? Because... If you don't understand how to store it securely and how quick you think your data will scale. So in the in the case of uh, building software, right, I have no idea how quick um, this app will get adopted and people will use it and love it, you know, all that. I know that you all will. 
but I have to kind of think forward and ahead like, okay, what do I forecast out? And based on that, that's going to dictate the type of database that you choose. Many people I see, they start off with a SQL server or MySQL or something, not realizing that this is going to be enterprise level or larger. They start to, to run along a couple few years, business is good, everything is going good. And all of a sudden, then they start running into a whole lot of like issues. It could be a deadlock. Um, there could be latency, you know, so maybe the the amount of data that you have stored to date, all of the code that you wrote, so like your SQL code, maybe it's not high performing. You don't have indexes. Um, you don't have a normalized design. You know, all of these things that matter will come back. So many people are so quick to want to write the app. They don't necessarily think about how the data is going to look, how that's going to be stored. You know, so before you do anything, definitely think of security. But then the next thing right after that is you got to think about, okay, how quick is your data going to scale? Because based on those two factors, that should be the, uh, the drivers on which platform you choose. So like nowadays, uh, there's, there's uh, the big data movement, obviously. So there's uh, NoSQL uh, solutions. Uh, one of my favorites is MongoDB. But, and I've also used Redis, which is not necessarily NoSQL per se, but in the way that, that I've utilized it at a couple places where I've worked, we've used Redis as a database. A light one at that, but still it was a database storing objects. So, you know, it's it's very imperative that you have a good understanding of that. And um, typically, if you're going to write something for the masses, you're going to probably want to go with something that's big data. Uh, so you can typically run this in kind of a microservice fashion on the AWS Azure uh, platform. You know, I've seen some people, they can still do the damn thing with, with uh, uh, SQL Server. I love SQL Server. That's my baby. I've rocked with it ever since for as long as, as I can remember, you know, so, and there's been a lot of advances with SQL Server, with the advent of Azure. I mean, honestly, hosting instances in the cloud is beneficial. So, you know, you don't necessarily have to pay for a quote unquote instance or server, but you pay for usage, you know, that's pretty much where the model is going, you know, so, uh, but you also have to look at, okay, so what language am I going to write this in? That's important. So typically with any of your uh, uh, database engines, there's some type of SQL, like whether it's, it's the Transact SQL or PL SQL, Old SQL, right? So there's going to be the SQL language that is related to the, to the relational database system or the database platform that you're using. So you need to make sure that you're proficient in that, that you understand how to write not just your basic queries, but your joins, how to go after grabbing the data in us in in a way that it makes sense you know a lot of people don't don't necessarily leverage the full power of these uh, database systems nowadays because they don't know how to write sql um you know you go online and you see that you have someone importing data in and so you're thinking that yeah this is a simple i can i can do it like this but for any type of of application that you're going to write there's always going to be some type of manipulation of the data when a user does something on the front end, so that could be a website and an application, a mobile app, right? Your database needs to be aware and capable, able to store that data or some aspect of it in itself in a secure fashion.
but you should be able to retrieve it as fast as you stored it. Anything in between there, pipe. If you have the wrong hosting plan, if you're doing your own thing, if you're at work, if you don't have enough bandwidth, maybe you have a T1 instead of a T3, or you know, or maybe you're looking to go to fiber. Maybe you have a data warehouse. Maybe you have a data cloud, a farm, a data lake, right? There's all of these things you need to take into account. Because those things right there, right, the schematic, the layout, the infrastructure, how is it going to function? Based on however you go, that route will basically tell you which of the database, quote unquote, engines are available like for use. Because there are those, there are those engines, sometimes it doesn't make sense to use a SQL server in a particular fashion. Like typically a corporate app, internal SQL, probably the way to go, right? But if you're doing something for the masses, let's say, uh, you know, you work for a company that that uh, provides a service and it's and it's a well-known service like a kayak or something like that right you're probably going to be working with big data there's going to be all kind of data flowing back and forth interchanging edi other things with other vendor services other things so you know potentially if you are kind of acting like a clearinghouse and grabbing other data from other people and doing things with it in your app potentially you know that could be um, that could be something that you need to consider. You know, um, you need to look for an engine that will allow you to not only access that data, but also receive it, retrieve it, save it, send it with and at a high performing speed. So, but for this app that I'm writing, I have no idea yet. I've considered uh, going the big data route. Um, you know, there's there's obviously, like I said, transport with JSON. Uh, there's still XML. It is still a very valid transport. You know, leveraging the DOM. You know, that can be that could be quite taxing sometimes. The document object model. So maybe you're going to go with a SACS parser to run from top to bottom all the way through the data. Right. You don't necessarily need to to go grab the whole the whole like uh, the whole XML and manipulate it. You know. So you know you need to. You need to think about these things, friends, because they're all very important. Once you think about them, right, and typically you're gonna choose your engine, right? You understand how to write it, right? You need to make sure that you go about allocating the proper amount of space. Time and time again, I see people, they set a limit on their database. They don't necessarily set it to grow. When they have to go back and set it to grow, they do, but their whole design whether it is a normalized or denormalized. Sometimes you gotta have some denormalized tables, I get it. But sometimes if the data isn't created in a concise fashion, you could be eating up precious storage space on your server that you don't need to. Now keep in mind that you could have indexes and different things like that that you need to implement as well. On top of all this, if your database engine supports that. If you're a NoSQL, probably not, but you need to work with a lot of probably JSON, XML, and objects that are probably in a serialized um, layout and, and format. So you need to consider that, right? I mean, I've seen some gnarly JSON out there that, I mean, it comes in files that are like meg thick, and there's some like large responses like that, that uh, come back. So you really have to look at all that and get an understanding. And I always tell people, you know, try to take a run through of, of other solutions that are going to come closer mimic what it is that you're trying to achieve 
if you don't have access to actually trying uh, to grab the data like direct, I mean, you know, it's always good to kind of try to quote unquote sniff out the competition, you know, also, but, but uh, do it with the mindset, not for stealing um, their intellectual, um, their intellectual property, but, you know, from the standpoint of, of your architecture, go into this thing and design it the right way. You know, if you're writing things down on a napkin, you're probably not doing it right. If it's in your head and you're kind of winging it, you're not doing it right. Right. I'm talking about writing good, solid software, good, solid software that will be around for years to come. Easy to maintain, easy to upgrade, not necessarily going to be worried about, you know, the logic or code that you write like today is going to be is going to be nil or phased out like next week. Right. So you need to kind of look ahead but you can't go too far ahead like i know that when azure came out uh, there was this big push for everyone to push to the data lake you know and so essentially uh, what a, a, a data lake is is just it's a construct that whenever you have whenever you have a mechanism in your process that is importing data from an outside source or internal you put everything into what they call the data lake. It's, I mean, it is a place where you hold data. Now from there, you can create channels and different things like that to go and pull data down and do things with it that's more specific. So with these data lakes, obviously it can get very disorganized very quick. So you need to make sure that you have some structure in your data lake. There's a number of different ways and patterns and technologies that help that allow you to do that there's a lot of reporting on top of that as well that you have at your disposal but you have to really think about you know it's more than just stuffing data in the lake once you stuff it in the lake then what are you going to do with it and can you grab it and do something quick with it because you got to keep in mind on top of all this you have you have a person that is probably either at a computer on a web browser a, a mobile phone sitting here waiting for you to complete their request and it requires you to pull data from other places sources all that and put it into one place aggregated and send it back in a nice pretty format right so you have to think about all these things friends all these things and i typically will tell like the pms and the bas who i work with like you know we need to have a, a meeting with the business or just whoever to talk about kind of a pie in the sky what do you want and then we can work our way back from that but then in addition to that, with what they want, foresee and take a look at what's coming down the pike. What do we have to be concerned about? Maybe there's some initiatives that are getting ready to happen that may affect the structure of your database. You need to take that into account, all that. And so you need to be very diligent. And typically if you're sprinting or if it's Kanban or whatever, my suggestion is you have some spike work that you basically just go ahead and create a couple stories or something out there and just sit there and focus on researching, right? Don't get in a rush to start writing code. I know it's enticing to, but don't. Really seriously, honestly, think about what the design should be, how the request should flow, right? Maybe you're integrating some type of API on top of this. Maybe that'll help and facilitate you making trips and calls to and from the database, right? You need to think about those things. Um, so you know in terms of trying 
in terms of trying um, uh, to design a solid database, right? Think about the infrastructure. Now, once you get all that flushed out, you have an idea, you know what you're gonna do, right? The next thing obviously is to start understanding, okay, what is it that I'm gonna store in this database? Now, a lot of people go buck wild and gung ho um, they don't necessarily follow the rules of normalization. That's a whole other podcast by itself. But all I will say to the point, once you start creating the tables that are going to reside in your database, make sure that you think about your relationships in between all of the data that you need to store. Right? You need to think about what would be a well-formed table. What information in a table makes sense? In terms of if there's other information that is outside of that table, how can you go back and reference that data and making all that a very efficient, efficient process? Because you can store everything in one table. You can. But that slows down your process. Why? Well, depending on how much data you're pulling from a table and what the format is, it may not necessarily pull as fast as you want it to. So it, at that point, in comes our little friends known as indexes. And these indexes, you write these according to certain fields or columns that are in that table or other tables. And when you're writing your code, when you're writing all of uh, your, your uh, uh, SQL and your where clauses and your joins and, and different things, you know, you need to make sure that the way that you're writing that code matches the order of the columns that you put in your indexes. Now, typically, most people, uh, they go the non-clustered route. You know, that's most most people that have a denormalized app, or sorry, a, de a, a, a denormalized um, uh, database structure typically use a hell of a lot of indexes because they probably have information that doesn't necessarily properly relate in terms of having referential integrity, you know, they uh, they may not follow that. So if they don't do that, shame on you. You should always try to the best of your ability to create normalized tables always. But sometimes you can't, right? Like there's some systems that I work with and stuff on a daily basis where a lot of the data uh, that are in these systems are is just not normalized. And when I'm asked like to work on a project or to do a specific something, something, it's hard for me to do it in that format that the data is in because it doesn't make logical sense in terms of actually looking at the data, processing it, you know, in terms of what we need to process it for. So sometimes you have to take a table that is very or slightly denormalized and you have to aggregate or do like whatever to create another, let's just say copy that is more normalized. Now for me, typically I do that with aggregations. I take data from here, 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 and then I put it all together into a normalized table. From there then, at that point forward in my solution, then I can use what's called inferential, uh, referential integrity. So uh, being able like to use keys or, you know, or oh, sorry, a key, so whether it is a column or maybe multiple columns put together in a composite key, then I can use that to then go and join to other tables to go and retrieve information. Now, these indexes, 
are little beasts all by themselves. So depending on if you're the DBA or you have a DBA, every now and then it's good because you're always inserting, updating, and removing data. Sometimes from the last time that you indexed, you may have, let's say you indexed a table, you had a million rows. But since then, you've lost 250,000 rows. So now you have 750,000 rows. Based on your re-index, if you're not on a maintenance plan or something like that, you could still be looking at that quote-unquote 1 million rows. Because inside of that index, you're still allocated for all 1 million rows. Now, even though you don't have a million rows, right, your process won't necessarily run through those records that are no longer there. But the whole point of an index is to make your searching more efficient. So it'll still have that quote unquote on the books. So you need to make sure that you re-index at a certain interval based on the amount of change that your data will go through. So whether uh, you're inserting records, updating or removing, that should dictate how often you probably should run some maintenance to make sure that you're re-indexing. With re-indexing, obviously in the example that I used, if you, and so let's say that, that uh, you've lost records Possibly trying like to shrink the DB or compress the DB down after re-indexing makes sense so that you can reclaim that space. That space, it can then uh, be used either for anything of a temporary nature, generally with SQL, you know, um, or you could just get extra space back just to store any other pieces of data or information, right? So you need to be very aware of not just like I said, the infrastructure, but also the ask, like what is being asked of? What is it that you're trying to do? And basically ensuring that you create those fields, those columns, but be, but be, but be um, very specific about what it is that you're trying like to save and make sure that it's relatable. Because when you're putting all this together, obviously the examples I'm using are, are all based in SQL Server, so you can interchange in you know, if you're using a like a totally different engine, what you need to do there. But 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 for me, typically, you know, when I get uh, to this point in creating anything, I typically try to create some type of common like schema to where I may have a let's say I have a, 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 a schema that I have a bunch of, of common objects and common pieces of data that I know that is kind of more generic or more global uh, to the whole application or solution uh, uh, that's being built, right? Creating a database that, you know, uh, that has all of these quote-unquote known objects or pieces of information is a good um, uh, design. A lot of people like to put everything together. I get it. I understand. One connection, less hops, like to the database, and I get it. If your app can function that way, if you can afford to do that and not actually, and not um, uh, take a hit on your architecture, on uh, your performance or scalability, go for it. That makes the most sense, right? But in some cases, you know, there's gonna be some data that just needs to be in a separate place. So maybe it's in a separate, let's say maybe it's in a separate database on the same server, that would be great. But always try to pull your common out, you know, uh, pretty much all of uh, your common, you know, um, uh, data and information off into its own schema and structure. 
the commonality right there is basically that when you're writing your actual logic and code, you can focus on pulling things together. So if you know that you're going to need a bunch of data from this database, instead of you writing multiple calls, you can write one call and grab what you need when it makes sense. Right. So and it keeps it keeps all of your data, especially if you're doing a lot of things like with versioning. Um, I mean, I have had issues in the past like with this where where uh, let's say I write software. Now I'm writing a new version, but I still need to support the old version because some people don't want to upgrade. Right. And I worked for someone that actually did that. So it was a bit tougher. Right. So we had a whole bunch of, quote unquote, versioned databases that were in production that basically maybe the difference between them was we have more data in one than the other different configuration sets or different information that was in a configuration format, whatever. Right. And then on the front end, the website, the desktop application, mobile app, whatever, it was still pointing to that version of the database. So, you know, in terms of when you start to create like your tables and whatnot, think about, think about uh, the concept of versioning. Is it something that is going to happen in your quote unquote application, your solution or just whatever? If so, take it into account. I'm not saying that you got to build a whole separate database, right? There's things that you can do. You can have the common database that I talked about and potentially maybe a side database that may have things more specific. Most, most providers or most people, they tend to kind of force people into forced upgrades, which is what I call them. Well, you're on version one, but you need to go to version two and then they will force and, and sunset you. So you could do that, right? A lot of people do that model. Why? Less code to write, it's easier. Go ahead and kick them off the old version at a certain point, then uh, you cut your losses. If people don't convert and they leave, it is what it is. So it comes down to a time thing. But initially, on the first cut of this, when you're coming up with the, with the design, think through all that. Think through all that, right? If later on, let's say that you start off with a model that doesn't support version, but later on you need to, Make sure that you at least think about it and put something in, at least a stub or something, and so that when you decide to implement some type of versioning in your in your database and uh, your solution, that it's easier at that point for you to do so. Failure to do that is going to mean a lot more scripts that you're going to have to write to update a lot of tables with existing data, right? And then that's going to obviously uh, you're going to run into the risk of having potential issues in production if you miss something. But again, that's the nature of what we do. So that's why trying to give the best amount of thought to what your database design and structure should be, it really does pay off. You know, um, I know right now I'm working on some on some things. I can't really speak about it, but I can kind of just speak high level. But I'm kind of at work as I'm working on some things where we have this database that was already created. There were stubs that were uh, created with additional features and enhancements that were going to come in the future that were going to be requirements for next year. So we kind of it's kind of a phased approach. So first year, there's a certain set of requirements that we have to fulfill. Next year, there's a bit more. Year after that, there will be just a bit more. And then after that, it may taper off and then it's just more general support. Right. And different things that we that. Um, that um, we may want to do just to have a better user experience. So initially, I created this whole database, and it's massive. I mean, we're talking 
close to hundreds of tables. I mean, under 150, but we're ranging in between about s probably 80 to 90 to about 100, 125. So there's a lot of data. And it's all pulling from a source that is not necessarily fully normalized. So what I had to do was pull all the data. And then the first thing that I had to do was I had to go through aggregate it and put it into a more normalized format so that it would be easier for us to work with it. The data is kind of dirty. There wasn't a lot of pre-validations done on it from the app and the other things like the front end of it. So we've allowed uh, some people to free text some stuff and put it in. Well, well, now we need to really hone in and be more specific on what data is in these columns. So it's hard, right? But that's part of the requirements gathering is we go do talk to the business and understand, OK, this is what we're doing right now. So we need to get a good understanding and consensus. Today, you don't necessarily have any restrictions on this field. But tomorrow, because we're building this, this field needs to be, let's say, a drop down that can only maybe has three or four values. You have to choose one of those or nothing rather than you being able to enter that stuff in, because maybe that field later on gets used as some type of key somewhere. Right. So so there's all this work right now of me having to go through and and kind of revisit uh, the schema to one, make sure that I can implement this coming year's like requirements, but two, still support last year's requirements. So there's been a couple places where, you know, we couldn't create any normalized tables. We had to we had to keep like the same structure. But I still tried to do some things with maybe store procedures, you know, and some UDFs, uh, uh, user defined functions and different things like that, where, you know, I can still try to do things maybe in query or inside of some type of kind of like a batch or transaction to where I can get the results that I need. Now, the trade off basically is, you know, when you're when you're pulling in data that's not relatable, when you when you finally go after trying to relate the data probably going to have a little bit of a lag. You're probably going to have some performance issues because it's probably not written for performance, obviously. It's just written to store data. And you can see these databases coming a mile away. You can just tell just from looking at it like, oh, Lord, like who or what wrote this, you know? And so that's what we went through last year. So last year, I put in a bunch of stuff to make the uh, whole solution more scalable. And so that when we started having the discussions this year, it's more like we can do that or we have an end that we can do that. So there's a way that we'll be able to implement that. So, you know, that should be your posture. You know, now it's not easy. OK, as so as easy as I make it sound, it's not easy. I mean, it's it's not easy to ask like the business or the requester of a project. What is all the data that you know that you're going to need? Because uh, they can tell you that today at this point in time, but they can't tell you that next year if they want to add business or do things a little different. Right. So you have to be you have to be understanding one for, uh, from a personality standpoint. But two, you have to be very you have to be very knowledgeable and wise to not lock yourself in your database schema into a certain structure. So if you know that you're dealing with, with data that is normalized or denormalized and you know that you run the potential of that structure changing you need to do all that you can do to make sure up front as best you can that you make a table scalable and then you know and i have people ask me well how do you do that well well like i said it's hard but 
typically what I try to do is when I have a piece of data, I will always create my classes and the different things that I know that I'm going to have and try to relate those to how the database could look. Because if you go that route, if you understand what's in your classes, right, essentially you're still building the database, but you're building it in a more quote unquote object oriented way or fashion. But in the programming world, if you're any type of developer, you use objects and you understand whether it's a POCO object or whether it's, it's another uh, kind or type, you know that that's your contract. That's your contract normally to probably an, an API or most likely to some type of database via IE, a stored procedure or something. So you have to really think through, think through at the highest level that you can how to create a table but keep it open-ended. So that could mean that you may have more tables up front that you have that you have to get to a normalized fashion. That's okay. A lot of people think that the more tables that you have, the slower the query runs, and that's not true. The opposite is actually true. The more tables that you have that are more relatable between one another, that have more relationships, with a little bit of assistance, from either the non-clustered uh, um, indexes, if you have your own little kind of custom key fields, if you have more than one in a table, or maybe you know, uh, you're know you lucky and you just have one column. So typically with a SQL Server, most other engines, you know, typically whenever you create a primary key, a clustered index is typically created right behind that because that's gonna be the one and only key. So the clusters, obviously, you know, um, I think they're more optimized to store less space on the database stack than a non-clustered is, because a non-clustered is pretty much just taking your world and trying to actually save a, a copy of your world into the database world. And if your data doesn't make sense to it, or if there's multiple fields, if there are different types, if there's different combinations that could potentially happen, right? You write your own destiny. So there's nothing wrong with trying to keep it as simple as possible. Less is more always with, with the database, but there are gonna be those occasions, just like in object-oriented programming, where sometimes you gotta step outside of the bounds of, 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 of the principles of object-oriented programming, and you have to do some things that you wouldn't do. Same thing goes for databases, right? There's just some things that are just gonna happen that way, but that's where your platform matters. Now, more and more people are going to the cloud. I don't have a problem with the cloud. I think the cloud is great. I've used the cloud at work. I've used it at home, like for different things. I think it's great. I think that, you know, it's a good alternative, like for pricing, because you get charged, uh, not necessarily, well, it depends. Sometimes uh, you get charged by the gig, the megabyte, sometimes you get charged per transaction. So really you need to look closely at probably an, an, probably an AWS or an Azure if you really are interested in the cloud. Moving with the cloud, it does a couple things for you in terms of your database. One, it kind of already creates or has the ability for you to create your own environment, your own database quickly. So typically with scripts, AWS, Azure haven't really done much, but I'm assuming it's the same. You can create and kill, or sorry, you can create and tear down uh, your instances, right? So 
whichever way that you decide to do it, you know, when you get into the web, you got to think of VPCs, you got to think about uh, VPNs and, and, you know, all of the tunneling from the cloud over uh, to you. If you have a proxy, you know, if you have a CDN, I mean, there's like, there's a whole bunch of different caveats and different things that can happen in there. But at the database side or the database part, right, if you're going to go with the cloud, then, you know, you need to understand that you're probably going to have a bit of latency, you know, because you're going to have to go most likely outside of your network, outside of your firewall, send requests, wait to get back and return back a God knows however large of a payload. But if the solution that you're calling in the cloud is written in a proper manner, your heartbeat should be slower. So more and more, and I'm probably going to do this, I see more people which kind of like to pull uh, their connection. So having more of a direct connect directly like to the cloud rather than having to reestablish each time because with the advent of TLS 1.2, 1.3 higher, you know, a lot of a lot of these services and different things require you to be at a certain level of, of a TLS. So if you are having like to connect every time that you do something, you need to think about that too. Trying to pull your connections, not just to your database, but to your cloud instance, which hosts your database. Same goes for if you're not in the cloud, but let's say you're on premise and you're on your own SQL server, you know, in whatever language that you write, trying to conserve or preserve a database connection could also help and speed things up. It's all about performance, but it does come down to how you build it, how it's structured, you know, also. So there's a lot to that. There's just a lot to that. And we can go on like forever. The gist of it basically is that, you know, you have a lot of work that you need to do in terms of of just deciding what you want to do. Once you decide, then you should try to trial some stuff out. Try playing around. Uh, you know, if you can, I try to sign up for AWS and or Azure um, and create like your own lab. Maybe you can spin up a virtual server, a machine or something, and just I, I try to play around uh, with things there. Depending on, on your size, if you're going to be on enterprise or larger, you know, trying to get into the bowels of the cloud, you know, it's going to help. Um, the cloud has matured so much in the last decade. I mean, I, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm kind of floored at how quickly distributed means um, have just kind of grown and blossomed in our industry. I mean, you know, when people would think of Amazon, all you would think about is shopping. Now people are thinking about, yo, AWS Web Services, AWS Glue, you know, all of these different microservices applications uh, that they have underneath the AWS umbrella that help and make your life better. You know, um, SDKs, I've used the AWS S SDK. I love it. It's so efficient. It's good. Um, you know, I want to play more and more with Azure. I think I'm going to finally get my opportunity here soon. You know, um, but then, you know, um, but, you know, that's not to say that you got to go cloud. A lot of people, like, they struggle. And I'll do a, a podcast on cloud uh, versus on, on a prem because I know that's important, too. Um, maybe not so much when talking about databases. You know, maybe you already have it understood, but maybe in terms of actually where you're going to write your business logic and where your code is going to ask you from, right? Depending on what it is that you're building and where it's hosted could have a big effect, a big impact on just, you know, like the overall flow and stuff of your process, um, the overall 
performance and scalability. Um, you know, it does make sense to be in the cloud. It does. So if you are against it, embrace it because it's not going it's not going anywhere. More and more people are trying to get the hell away from having all the volume licenses and the license like per seat and servers and doing all this and and having to sit and do all of the management for servers that they host on prem. They're trying to get out of that business and rather they're trying to offset that or offload it rather to AWS or Amazon or Azure and Microsoft and just have them handle that. Why? So that you can get up and running quicker, faster, get to writing code quicker, get to testing, get to market faster. That's the whole point of it, right? So again, I don't want to kill this podcast, but I'll do another one on just cloud versus on-prem. That'll be fun. Um, So the last but not least is when you get all this done, you got your database platform, you've chosen what you want to use, you got your tables created, you understand your stored procedures or any other type of procedures that you're going to write that is going to do all of the quote-unquote heavy lifting of the data or doing the different things uh, that you may need. Establishing that kind of data layer, if you will, that is from from input in, from user or some other system directly to database and back out, right? Get that established. Most people do CRUD, create, read, update, and delete. That's I've done CRUD ever since I started in 2000. That's, that's the way to go. I mean, it's old school, but it works. You know, there's some people that use Entity Framework. Um, I use that too. That's solid, you know, a little bit of a learning curve, but not much. You got to be up on your link if you're going to do that. Um, typically, there's probably some type of integration with normally a .NET. I haven't really messed with with um, um, within uh, with an entity framework type of package. Maybe not necessarily EF, but but maybe something more open source. They typically all work the same, you know. So depending on on um, what your preference is in terms of languages and different things and, and environments and whatnot, choose wisely, you know, because when you write something in a particular language, I mean, you can rewrite it, but that takes women and man hours to go back through and do that. So think really good about, especially if you work in the enterprises, okay, what is it that we're writing? And what is the knowledge of my team? Can my team support this if we write it? At a minimum, you should know some type of SQL. Um, you just need to, um, because that is how you can get in and around, especially SQL. You gotta know your transact SQL. Um, you know, like for Oracle, like your PL, SQL, you know, or your OSS, SQL. So, you know, you have to be, you have to be on point with it. Now, there's another realm here, and that is uh, the NoSQL route. I haven't really spoke uh, that much about it because it's, while it is a database in its own right, it's a lot easier, like, to manage. Um, so there's, like, obviously, like, uh, the MongoDBs of the uh, world. Um, I spoke about Reddish in terms of uh, of storing things like objects and different things, keys or whatnot. Um, you know, there was something else I was going to say about that. Um, but then there's also, like, there's a standard coming out, the Parquet standard, you know. Um, I kind of started to play with that. Um, when I did some work in AWS and it it's it works well I just think that I have to play with it more it 
it's a pretty much you creating it's like you create metadata that creates the structure of what your data is and that metadata you in turn can create it to also create your data so and when you read it right like uh, with these parkhead files right like you got to read so uh, there is a a object in there that pretty much has all of the headers and the headers in there you know that's going to be your columns basically and then you have another quote-unquote virtual table if you will that has all of the actual data that maps on to those headers so i don't necessarily think that the structure I don't think the structure is what matters the most with NoSQL. I think it's the way that the logic that is written that interprets that markup in the Parkhead files or the MongoDB, that's where the action happens. So when you start uh, uh, to take a look at all these Mongos and different things like that, I mean, you do those things for more transactional types of, of solutions and things that you know that you need to store some chunk of data on a rolling basis so let's say that you know you're creating some data and you store it out there you know that you're going to need it within an hour you know uh, the idea is that if you have many requests that that would be a good candidate uh, to store that kind of stuff in mongodb you could do the same in sql and just write a windows service or some type of, of sql job it can do the same thing but it comes down to volume what makes sense if you're working with big, big, big data, so we're talking about millions and millions and millions, billions and trillions of records, or if you're dealing with with a more finite amount that you know you don't necessarily see it surpassing, let's say, 100,000 rows or, or something, big data is probably not for you. You know what I'm saying? So you really have to think about you know that in addition to everything else uh, that I spoke about. Um, but typically if you're going to be using some type of NoSQL type of solution that means that you're building a monster and so you would already know that you need that type of leverage you need that that type of functionality to be able to store that data in that manner so there's some things that are just obvious and it will come but m my suggestion is really understand from the business side before you get going how do, how do they want to grow that's important because if you can understand how they want to grow i.e. how the data that they want out of this system or this database, how that's going to grow. If you can get a good understanding or feel for that, that's going to help you understand a lot of what I, uh, what I talked about here in, in this podcast uh, today and which way that you should go. Um, you know, like with anything in IT, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there's always a lot of interpretation. Everything is relative always. Um, so what works for one may not work for the other. And what works in one in some capacity may not work in the same capacity for someone else either. So you got to be mindful of that. But as long as you're doing your homework, you're working with your architects, you're working with your data stewards, and you're working with other people that are going to help you create this, as long as you all have a good consensus, I'm fairly certain that you're going to come up with a pretty good structure, a pretty good architecture, and a pretty good plan like, for moving forward. So, um, so you know... It, the last thing uh, that I'll speak about is really just in terms of security. I mean, it goes without mentioning that whatever you decide to store with the advent of PCI and, and different things and, and all these breaches and different things that happen, you know, you got to be mindful. you got to make sure that you're using solid encryption hashes and, and different things or packages to encrypt your data. 
Typically, I see a lot of people use something offline rather than using the database encryption. Um, I know for SQL Server, I've used I've used the SQL Server encryption, but I wouldn't use it in any type of solution because if I get breached, then I'm sure as hell going to be a duck in the water, right? So you really got to think about maybe you have some type of abstract layer or some type of custom layer or some common layer, as I talked about, that will do all of that. And maybe all you're using is maybe you're creating your encryption and decryption like routines outside of, of the database, but you're saving the encrypted values inside of, of the database. So, you know, uh, depending on whichever engine that you're using, make sure that you choose the right type. Because I've seen with encryption when people aren't paying attention and they create a, a, a particular uh, field, you know, they normally won't create enough space. Because when you encrypt the value, let's say you encrypt the word now okay when you encrypt it depending on whatever encryption key that you use uh, for the word now it could make that a few extra characters it can make it 100 characters who knows it really depends on the encryption key it depends on the type of encryption that you're utilizing right so um i, I mean obviously whichever hash i'm not going to get into that because everyone has their own op opinions on that but the higher uh, the bit count, the better. So 256 seems to be about right nowadays. It used to be 128 about uh, 10 years ago. Uh, that was the hot thing. Now it's 256. Hell, I've even seen some people do 512, right? And then make sure that you rotate your keys. That's important, you know. Don't just say, hey, I created this. I created a key. It's good. Let's go. Make sure that you implement some type of security protocol. So get in touch with your security champion. Make sure that uh, for service accounts and for all other keys and things like that, that you're rotating them every 90 days, right? Make sure that you're being very diligent with your security because everything that we talked about, all of all of the structure, uh, uh, the picking of the engine and the denormalizing, all that means nothing. If your security is not there, if it's not intact, it means nothing, friends. It means nothing. So for me, I am a security first developer. A lot of developers don't like that. They like to just get in there, write code, and then they worry about all the security later. No, I do the security up front. And whenever I write something, I try to get it approved with my security champion up front because if I can see that I have a piece of data that is at rest, that shouldn't be. But my logic isn't allowing me to actually change or alter that. Or maybe the structure of the, of the table is just wrong or bad. Or maybe I don't even need to store it in a database. Maybe I can say for this particular part, I can store this key in Redis or something like that, right? Find ways to farm out the owning of, uh, of storing your encrypted values to a point, to a point. Because there's a lot of logic that those people already went through to come up with all of these secure uh, um, algorithms and uh, storage mechanisms that you could sit here and recreate yourself. You, you, uh, you most definitely can, but is it worth your time, right? If you get breached, is it worth your time? So I've seen a lot of people adopt like, uh, you know, uh, uh, things like Redis or Masterpass or like, there was one other thing that I know that I used, I'm trying to think of it, I can't right off the top, but, but there's all of these, but, but there's all of these kind of encryption key storage hashes and providers and solutions out there now that are easy to leverage. 
easy to leverage. So I highly suggest that you put that on the table and you consider it. But don't necessarily say that you have to have something either. While it is easier to go ahead and use something that already has been thought about and, you know, and created and built, sometimes, just sometimes, it makes sense to do it yourself. So you have a lot to think about, friends. And in closing, all I can tell you is good luck. I'm here to help you. Definitely, uh, you can reach out. But when you go about trying to design your database, you have to think security, performance, and scalability. And uh, like I said, uh, with the advent of APIs and the exchanging of information now at a higher rate, more volumes of it, we have to be very mindful that whatever solution or solutions that we build have to be high performing, but we still have to make sure that we're being secure in what we're trying to do. And you don't necessarily want to waste resources which equate to money and time if you don't have to. Your database is your most important aspect of any project. Failure to start with it first, you will find your solution on rails, running off of them. I guarantee you. So, one love as always, y'all. This is the Tech Brat.